This podcast is created for farmers and powered by Pioneer Agronomy to bring you agronomic insights and proven solutions to fuel forward-thinking farming. Hello, everyone. This is Kelly Herbick, your host here from the Northeast region. I'm joined by Cheyenne Markowski, our summer intern. Cheyenne, can you tell us who our guests are for today? Thanks, Kelly, for that introduction. We're in the middle of July, and we're joined with field agronomist Kevin Fry, who covers Western Pennsylvania and Ohio, and Ryan Permilia, who covers Eastern Pennsylvania down to Southern Delaware. Welcome, everyone. Thanks We're for glad to be back. Awesome. This week, our topics are going to really revolve around in-season disease and insect pressure, and we're going to talk about corn, soybeans, and alfalfa. But before we jump into our main segment, um, we are going to hear our odd and unexplained topic for the week is where, where our field agronomist tells us something that they've been seeing out there that is maybe out of the norm. Um, Kevin, I know that you've got something for us this week. Can you tell us what you got? Sure. Actually, I think I've got uh, quite a good one here. This one actually turned out to be a, uh, odd, and I'm beginning to explain it now. Um, got, a, got a picture texted me from a sales rep uh, earlier this week of what I thought to be just some sun scald and soybeans. And upon further investigation, I realized it wasn't exactly what we were looking at. So when you think about sun scald and soybeans, typically what I've normally seen is that that occurs when you have a soybean leaf that kind of lays and turns upside down from drought conditions. And then the underside of that leaf is exposed to much more intense sunlight than it typically is. And you'll get a, a bronzing, overall bronzing to that leaf. And it'll even turn the the leaf veins a little bit reddish. And the other big characteristic you'll see with that is there'll be a, a sunshade line where you can see where that leaf was folded or shaded by another leaf. And that's one of the biggest indicators of, of sun scald. Now, this particular symptom that it was sent to me, it was the upper sides of the leaf and there was no, no shading lines. Uh, they were all fairly uniform in their appearance. And oh, to describe the injury, it was, uh, it was kind of this brownish, reddish brownish kind of stippling uh, modeling spots between the leaves on the on the upper sides of the all oh, the middle-aged leaves. I would say it. They were uh, fully developed. Nothing on the young leaves. All right. So the question I ended up getting that is why was there such a variety difference among them? Uh, we were seeing big differences in varieties. So that got me doing a little bit more research and digging and looking. And as I was doing some reading, I heard a mention of ozone injury. I thought, well, geez, what's ozone injury? This is a, this is a new one to me. Uh, so upon some further investigation, I, I found that ozone injury to crops is something real that's out there. Uh, it's primarily in the vegetable scene where your watermelons, uh, cucumbers, uh, cucurbits, uh, tomatoes, potatoes are much more susceptible to it. However, beans and soybeans are as well. And what I found is that uh, basically when we are under those ozone alerts and air quality issues that we are, are dealt with as humans, the crops are dealing with some of the same things as well. And what happens is, is that ozone enters into the plant through the stomates and causes that injury that I, I described. And it can eventually progress and get become much worse and even cause some, some yield injury. So there's more learning I've got to do on it, but uh, to make a, a long story short, which I know is difficult for an agronomist to do, especially on a podcast, uh, is that uh, if you're seeing some sun scald injuries that looks an awful lot like Sarcophora uh, leaf blight, 
but you're not in conditions that support that disease starting to show up and it's on the upper side of leaves and some of the, the older, more mature leaves, but not in the new growth, there's a good chance you're looking at ozone injury and give it a quick Google search and uh, you, you might find some additional information on it. That's a good one, Kevin. I guess quick question and follow up. Is there anything we can do about it? No, management wise, uh, my brief research I've looked at, there's, there's nothing really we can do. But there is differences in crop tolerances. That was the one thing I found most interesting is that uh, they showed two pictures of snap beans. One was tolerant, one was susceptible to it. And there was a very distinct difference between the two. And I, I assume and I believe that there's going to be differences among soybean varieties, for example, as well. And that's why we were happy to be seeing it in one particular variety versus, versus another. Kevin, a question coming here from a fellow agronomist. So should I put SPF 30 on my soybeans? Will that help them with ozone tolerance or not? No, just, just you. You're, you're, you'll be the only one to need that, Ryan. <laughs> Great, guys. Well, that will take us into our main topic, again, which is really focusing into um, in-season pestilence and disease. So We'll start with the corn crop um, and we'll start down on the peninsula. Ryan, can you tell us what you're seeing in corn right now? Yeah, so for those listeners that have actually tuned into us, um, I'm a little bit farther south than Kevin. He's, you know, in the western part of Pennsylvania, eastern part of Ohio. I am down on basically the Atlantic Ocean. Um, and we're starting to see a lot of corn foliar diseases come in. The first one and the easiest one to identify is always gray leaf spot, and the other one that we sometimes see is northern corn leaf blight, but the northern part of the territory that I cover will get a little bit more northern than GLS. So uh, we're at pretty much VTR1, maybe R3 in our corn crop, and I get the question all the time of, you know, should I spray a fungicide? Is a fungicide worth it? If I do spray a fungicide, when should I spray it? So that's kind of the questions I'm getting right now. So if we drill into that a little bit, um, and you mentioned gray leaf spot specifically, um, what's the threshold as, as we're scouting the fields, what should we be looking for? So at this point, if you're VTR1, um, two leaves below your ear leaf is, is what really what matters. If you have it on the ground level, chances are, and you put a fungicide on, it's not gonna make it up through the rest of the plant. But if you're at one or two leaves below where your ear is gonna be, where your silk has emerged, that's where you should start to have concern. And the issue with gray leaf spot is it has a latency period. So it has um, basically an, an infection point where you won't see it, but it's there. So if you see it two leaves below where your ear is going to emerge or where your silks are at this point, um, chances are you need, you need a fungicide. And the other thing that we get into around here is you only have 14, 21 days for actually a curative and a preventative thing. So the earlier you do it, the better off you are in, in a year like this. Okay, Kevin, what are you seeing up in your geography? Are you seeing any, um, any disease pressure in your, your area? Yeah, it's quite a bit different up here. Uh, the majority of my area is really hot and dry. Um, in fact, that we've got some corn that's about knee high and tasseling under some of the drought stress. So the fungicide discussion here has been quite different. Uh, in many cases where guys were thinking about fungicide applications this year, they've kind of, a lot of guys have actually even pulled the plug on it because it's so hot and dry. We are not seeing a lot of uh, disease pressure that's out there. Um, however, as you move north and west in my area, get up closer to the lake, there are some guys up there that are catching a few bit 
few more rain showers. Um, disease pressure so far has been fairly light. I think it's probably going to be similar to what Ryan was talking about, a little bit of a gray leaf spot here and there. I've yet to see any carbonum. I haven't seen any outbreaks on, on uh, uh, northern quarter leaf blight yet either. Um, the biggest caution I'll just throw out as we're on the, the fungicide discussion is timing-wise. Um, a lot of my guys are trying to go in with their ground rigs. It can be tough to get airplanes scheduled out here. Uh, and if you're going in pre-tassel, just remember to read that fungicide label. Uh, a lot of those, or probably most of those, are all those fungicide applications pre-tassel you want to leave out for surfactant. Uh, it's after tasseling where it can be safe to put that surfactant in. An application of surfactant alone pre-tassel can cause arrested uh, ear development. So just, uh, you know, just a reminder and a caution on the, the timing aspect of whether or not to include a surfactant or not. Yeah, Kevin, I, I, I agree with you. Why do, why do you think that it, why do, why do we leave the surfactant out? Arrested ear, arrested ear development will occur. Uh, so basically, if you put a surfactant down pre-tassel, that surfactant alone can cause that. Uh, basically, you've got a very tiny, very susceptible ear that's growing out there that can, uh, uh, is very easily to damage. So that surfactant alone can basically stop the development of that ear. I agree too. And the other thing is that our silks are so much water dependent and this, and the surfactant's job is to soak up all the water and make the, the septic to the leaf. So it, it'll kill the silk sometimes. I agree. Totally agree. So Kevin, as you were hitting on um, timing in corn, let's switch into uh, soybeans and what you're seeing in soybeans. Can you talk to us a little bit about soybean staging, um, kind of the growth stages that you're seeing out there and that, how, how that affects decisions? Yeah, great question, Kelly. Um, because the, the applications of uh, any of soybeans insecticides in the soybeans is very dependent upon the, the growth stage. And trying to figure out what that growth stage, it can be a little bit challenging. It's not as though we're throwing up a tassel like in corn where you go, oh, all right, we've had tasseling, so to speak. So soybeans, the way I always break it down is R1 is when you see a flower on that plant. All right, so as soon as you see one flower on that plant somewhere, we're at R1. R2 is when we have flowers top to bottom. I mean, it's just loaded up with flowers. R3 is the next one that I'll talk about. And that's when we primarily are, are timing our fungicide applications. And that's why R3, I think, is kind of the most important one to be able to identify. And the easiest way I to talk about that is that R3 in soybeans is when a soybean pot is formed and it is as long as a pencil is wide. All right, so as your listeners out there, take a look at a pencil. If you've got a pod that is as long as that pencil is thick, you're at R3, that's when you want to time your, uh, your, your typical foliar fungicide applications. Great. Okay. So I guess um, then what should we be thinking about in terms of, of diseases or, or um, insects? Are we seeing much out there at this point? And what's your recommendation? There's not a whole lot that's kicking up so far. Um, the, the fungicides, the, the, the diseases that I really kind of keep a watch out for are going to be like Cicospora, uh, your Septoria brown spot, which is pretty much regulated to the bottom of the canopy and hasn't been too awful much out there, and frog eye. So basically, frog eye and Cicospora are the big fungicides or funguses out there that we can get control with the fungicides. Uh, the insecticides, that's another little aside is if you're going to go through and spray a fungicide, you might as well throw the tank mix and throw the insecticide in and, and, and put them together. The ins insects are starting to warm up. Uh, 
I'm seeing a little bit of uh, grasshopper nymph activity. The Japanese beetles are starting to get active. Uh, I suspect that uh, bean leaf beetles and even Mexican bean beetles are going to start to show up here shortly. And the thing to remember on, on these are, I classify all these under as like the, the soybean defoliators. All right, they're after chewing, eating leaves. Uh, most of these are going to be edge feeders. So as you're scouting and looking at fields, make sure you get past the edge. You know, the damage is always going to be worse along the edge of the field. And then look at the overall defoliation of the whole canopy. Um, as we get into the flowering to pod fill stages, you're looking at roughly 15 to 20 percent defoliation of the entire canopy. All right. So 15 to 20 percent of all leaf material needs to be gone for you to be at that kind of that threshold for when you want to pull the trigger on on insecticides. But however, like I said, if you're going in and going to make a fungicide application at R3 for, for plant health, I think it's a good idea to throw that insecticide in there. The only other thing I want to throw out there real quick as we talk about timing and fungicides is that uh, if you're looking about white mold control, that pretty much is happening right now for our soybeans out here. We're in that R1 to R2 stage. White mold applications, you want to make sure you're protecting the flowers that are out there. So that's why that timing is a little bit earlier, uh, making an application of approach at that R1. And then under worst cases, you know, bad cases of white mold or, or uh, a lot of white mold history, you may want to follow, follow that up from a uh, another application, another, uh, you know, 14 to 21 days after the initial application. So that's where we're at. Uh, Ryan, what stage are the, the beans for you guys down there? Uh, some of them are R3, some of them are R1, but I, I echo Kevin's opinion on the white mold opinion where, you know, you got to you gotta scout for white mold and you have to look at your beans and you have to know where they are and what stage you are because some people need two applications of something like approach. Some people need one application they can cure it. So I think my biggest takeaway from this time of year is scout your, scout your crops, look at it. See where you're at. Great. Well, that should wrap up corn and soybeans. But I know we do have a quite a few uh, alfalfa acres out through Pennsylvania. Um, Kevin, what are you seeing in alfalfa at this point? Yeah, glad you brought that up, Kelly. The potato leaf hopper and alfalfa are probably the worst I've I've ever seen. Uh, I've seen alfalfa beginning to turn yellow from potato leaf hopper uh, activity on them. They're turning as quickly as two weeks even after uh, an insecticide application has been there. Um, even if you're growing a potato leaf hopper resistant alfalfa, this time of year, I would still, in the pressure I'm seeing now, I would still even recommend putting an insecticide application down on that. That's the, the leaf hopper came up very early with a lot of the, the Gulf uh, storms coming up in the Gulf and the warm air we had early on. Uh, and then this hot weather has just really allowed those populations to, to blow up. So. Uh, stay diligent with your leafhopper sprays and alfalfa. They're they're still they still continue to be bad. Should we be sweeping the fields, Kevin? Um, kind of scouting and trying to monitor populations, or you're just kind of saying probably be proactive. What's your thought? Well, I hate to just say blanket throw applications out there. Yes, I, I, you know I've always been a firm believer in IPM and, and doing some scouting. But uh, I, I guess this is probably one of the, the closest I've ever been to making blanket spray applications uh, in alfalfa. I still think it's important to make some sweeps that are out there. But uh, even if you look at some of the clover and things in, in around the borders of fields, you'll see that yellowing of the, the leaf hopper burn there. So 
they're bad. Yes, keep after the applications. All right, so this is not a prompted question, I swear, um, but I know we've talked about some of the remote sensing tools that we've got in the past, um, either Pioneer Seeds app or Granular Insights. Would you expect to see some of uh, the things that you've described here today using your, um, your satellite? What have you seen there? Have you, have you noticed things via satellite imagery or how would you be using that tool this time of year? Yeah, you certainly could. The, the, the imagery would certainly pick up on those. Um, uh, I would suspect that uh, as that alfalfa begins to yellow uh, from leafhopper injury, that's going to begin to show up. Um, so yeah, I think that'd be a very good tool that you could utilize. Uh, and in reality, I'll tell you what, it kind of, this rolls right into the, my weekly watch out, uh, is that this is where I think the satellite imagery is really gonna help a guy out this year is looking for a spider mite injury in soybeans. Um, I, I really think when you look at what the, the, the granular insights and that weekly uh, update rankings it'll do for you, you'll start to see certain fields that are going to start to migrate to the top of your priority list and you can take a look at them and those field edges I think are really going to start to have that yellow glow to them in the satellite imagery because uh, as I was driving around uh, this week I did begin to see some spider mite injuries starting to show up so um, you know a lot of times you can spot them but driving down the road but I really expect Rainer Insights is going to be a way to uh, spot those uh, this year and and I think that's gonna be a really good tool for guys to utilize. Great. Yeah Kelly can, can I chime in for a second? Yeah, the, you the thread ID yeah the thread ID tool in Pioneer Seeds app if growers haven't downloaded that the thread ID tool does a really good job of diagnosing fungal diseases, bacteria diseases and insect pressure corn, soybeans, alfalfa, wheat, it does a really great job. So if you haven't downloaded that, it's available in the App Store, Android, all of it. Awesome. Um, is there, a, so with that, I think that pretty much ruled us right through our, our weekly watchouts. Um, appreciate all the feedback. Are there any last minute thoughts, things that we should be considering out there um, as we look out the next seven to 14 days? Yeah, I just one quick follow up on the spider mites. Uh, I just want to remind everybody that spider mites are under the mite classification. They're technically not in the insects. So a standard insecticide application uh, may not necessarily work. So make sure you're getting the correct uh, mode of action for any spider mite activity that you have if you want to control those. Uh, your organophosphates and dimethoates are primarily the ones that have the activity. They're kind of labeled as a as a miticide. So just make sure you're using the right one because straight pyrethroids, some of those can actually cause a flare up in the spider mites. So just double check and make sure you're using the right product if you're gonna make a spider mite control application. Great, great advice, Kevin. So thank you both for joining us. That will wrap us up for the week um, and we'll be back again next week with a new episode. Um, stay tuned. Thanks everyone for coming today. Just a reminder that Kelly and I are both on Twitter at Kelly Herbick at Shai Markowski, and you can also follow Pioneer Seeds and Corteva at Pioneer Seeds and at Corteva US. Thank you, everyone. And just a reminder, if you've had any specific questions about your specific fields, please reach out to your local Pioneer agronomist or Pioneer sales rep. Thank you, everyone. Hope you have a wonderful week. Thank you for listening to this episode from the Pioneer Agronomy Team. 
be sure to visit pioneer.com backslash podcasts to access additional episodes and learn more about our extensive on-farm data and innovative digital tools that are fueling forward-thinking farming.